So where we are is last week we finished Ezekiel 37, which brings us in Ezra to 38. As we're going into 38 and 39, that is the Gog and Magog War. Nobody that I have read has any idea when this is happening. And there are several theories. One theory is that it's historical and that would be sort of a preterist perspective. The problem with that is the array of nations that we have here has never gone up against Israel in the past, so there isn't an exact historical match for it. If you're a rapture maven, which I am not, they get all hung up in pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, before the rapture, after the rapture, during the rapture, uh, etc. But basically the idea there is it's before or during the tribulation. There are some people who are of the opinion that it's a Revelation 20 event because Gog and Magog show up again in Revelation 20. So I will not pretend to know. I don't have any idea. We'll just go through it. And as we hit points that people will cite in their defense as their pimping for one or the other of their theories will point them out. The other thing that is, I think, probably important is we've just finished Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, which is the restoration of Israel, the resurrection and the restoration of all Israel. And in 38, it talks about Israel living in peace and not fearing their neighbors. So it seems like conceptually they may be sequential. Again, I don't know. So let's start and see what happens here. So we're in Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth-Togermar from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, Many peoples are with you. Magog is in the space between the Caspian and the Black Sea, north of Turkey. Meshach and Tubal are what we would call modern-day Turkey. Persia is Iran today. And then Put is probably Libya. Cush is probably Ethiopia. But the idea here, as you're looking at the map, is the countries listed are all around Israel. You've got them on the south, you've got them on the north, you've got them on the east, and you've got them on the west. So the idea there is that they're all coming together as one. The other thing is all of these names 
show up in, I believe, Genesis 10, which is where the land is divided after the flood. God puts people where he wants them. And a long time ago, I was listening to Chuck Missler, and he asserted, and I have no reason to doubt him, that God doesn't keep track of nations per se. What he does is he tells you where he put the original ones, and then he just refers to nations by area. So Magog, being in the area between the Caspian and the Black Sea, and north of there, right now it's Russia. It has been the Scythians. It has been Magog, whoever they were. So the actual people inhabiting these regions changes, but God still refers to them by geography and the geography from Genesis. Once he sets it up in Genesis, he refers to those areas consistently, regardless of who actually is there. The other thing to notice is, if you were looking at this as something that was going to happen today, as in within our lifetime kind of thing, all of these nations around there are Islamic. So the area of Magog, or what is called the Stans, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, those areas, and most of those in southern band of Russia are Muslim. Of course, Iran, which is Persia, is Muslim. Meshach and Tubal, which is Turkey, as is Gomer, is Muslim. Put, which is Libya, is Muslim. And then Kush, which is Ethiopia, is also Muslim. So if this refers to something contemporary, as opposed to something 10 centuries from now, or as opposed to something five centuries ago, then what you have are all of these areas are Muslim. And one of the things about Islam, and I am not an expert on Islam, is once Islam has conquered an area, it is considered Islamic forever. And if somebody conquers it back, they sort of have a religious duty to kick them out again. So if somebody rolls back Islam, as I understand it, Muslims do not consider it as having been taken from them. They consider it as some place they have a sacred duty to retake. So places like Spain and Israel, of course, one of the reasons for the conflict, which is sort of ongoing, is this idea that, well, Islam used to own the place. They no longer do. But it's still Islamic country, so we need to get rid of the infidels and turn it back into Islamic country. That's my understanding. As I say, I'm not an expert in that, but do with that as seems good to you. But the point here is at least everybody who's named as coming up against Israel is Islamic today. And they all surround Israel. So they're becoming from all sides. The other thing that I find kind of interesting is this business in verse 4. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army and horses and horsemen. 
That sounds to me like God is instigating this. And there is precedent for that. As you all know, since we're reading Ezekiel right now, one of the things that God does is raises up empires and uses them to chastise Israel. Babylon and Assyria were called down by God to chasten Israel and the Neo-Babylonian Empire lasts basically 70 years, which is the time that Jeremiah says Israel owes the land in Sabbaths. So God says, Israel, you owe the land 70 years worth of Sabbaths, so I'm kicking you out for 70 years, and that is how long Babylon exists. And then after that, they're no longer in exile, quote-unquote, and theoretically they could come home. They don't actually get sent home until Cyrus. One of the theories about this series of wars, and we'll read on here in a minute, and you'll see Israel is at peace. And we've had these prophecies against the various near lands around, you know, Tyre, Edom, and so forth, you know, the immediate proximity. These folks are farther away. They're not Israel's contingent neighbors. And we've had prophecies against her contingent neighbors for the way that they acted as Israel was taken out by first Assyria and then Babylon. These folks are farther out. One of the theories is, at one time or the other, lots of these people have been part of invading armies not necessarily the leaders of it, but you know the Assyrians would bring in soldiers from other nations around them, so would the Babylonians, so would the Persians and the Medes. So the idea is people from all of these regions have participated in the various chastenings of Israel. And so one of the reasons that God is putting hooks in their jaws and bringing them out is he's bringing them into a war that he knows they're not going to win. The idea there is that those nations are being chastened as well. So, it's ambiguous. You're going to see things from all over the place as we go through it, and I don't know. So we're all the way down to verse 7. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered, In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the lands whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, as people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Remember back in 37... We had the dry bones, and that was the restoration of Israel, which had been scattered and given up ever being a nation again. In verses 7 through 10 here, Israel is back in the land. They have been taken out of all of the peoples where they have been scattered. They are living in peace, and they're not in fear. One of the commentaries I was reading said, The closest thing 
to that happening has been 1948. Because you did have Jews return to Israel from all over the world, and certainly all over Europe and America and so forth. The problem with pegging it to 1948 and following is Israel has been continually at war ever since they got back. They have not been able to live quietly and in peace. The counter-argument to that, for those who are pushing that point of view, is Israel doesn't live in fear because of their military and technological superiority. They have been able handily to beat everything that the Arabs have thrown at them. So even though they are in a continual state of warfare, they're not afraid. Do with that again as you will. It's an argument that is presented for this time period being when this takes place. I'm just pointing these things out as we go. I don't have a strong opinion. The other thing that's going on right now, which is interesting, is Israel has been conducting air raids against Syria because, of course, Iran is trying to establish a proxy state there. But it turns out that a major player in that region now is Russia. So Russia has got a major presence in the area east of Turkey, Kazakhstan maybe, I don't remember all my stands, and then Syria and so forth, and they're heavily engaged there, as are the United States. The United States has got a heavy presence in Syria right now. So again, you have, if you will, Gog and Magog, who are southern Russia. So you have them involved in that area right now. And they're allied with various Muslim groups and nations. So all the way down to verse 10 now. Thus says the Lord God, On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? This idea of Israel living in peace without walled cities. The other thing is in verse 12, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited. And one of the things that you all know as Israel has come back to the land, the land has blossomed under their hand. So the idea that this area that used to be waste places, now that the people are back, is blossoming. Furthermore, Israel is extremely rich. They've got the most advanced technology in the region. They've got factories, they've got resources, they've just got all sorts of wealth stacked up in there. 
So again, that description would certainly apply to Israel as it is today. Comment was back in 37, we're talking about rebuilding a walled city. This now talks about without walls. And again, I do not know. As you see these little places, you say, oh, 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 that's what's going on. And then in the next breath, it's, no, that doesn't work. That's why I'm being very cautious and I am not being dogmatic about any of this. I'm just pointing this stuff out as we go. But anyway, the the motivation, if you will, uh, back up in uh, verse 10, thus says the Lord God, in that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villas. I will fall upon the quiet place to dwell securely. And the whole purpose of this is to seize, spoil, and carry off plunder. It's an economic war. They got all sorts of goods. We're going to go ahead and take them. Having said that, that isn't the motivation of Islam. Islam's motivation is, we just don't like you. And you're infidels, and we want you out of there. What I was about to say is, if Islam did attack and did take Israel, they would certainly avail themselves of the plunder. And that may not be true. Because you all remember several years ago when Gush Katif got given back to Gaza. And Gush Katif was a farming community, had very, very high-tech greenhouses. They were a major produce producer. They exported and so forth, and they had these very high-tech greenhouses. And so Israel voluntarily withdrew, gave it to the Palestinians, and the Palestinians just came in and destroyed everything, wrecked everything, made no use of it. So I was about to say, if the Muslims came in and took the place, they would certainly avail themselves of all the wealth. But having thought about that, I'm not so sure that's true. So I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this is all over the place. It's got stuff that seems to apply to a lot of different situations. So we're all the way down to verse 14 now. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me, when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This takes you back to the beginning of the chapter where we were talking about putting hooks in their jaw. And of course the idea of a hook is that it's something that you attached to something to draw it toward. That's what a fish hook does. Hooks a fish in the jaw so he can take it somewhere. And one of the things that conquering armies used to do was they would literally put hooks in the jaws of their captives and drag them along. So the idea here is that you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. The whole purpose of the exercise here 
is so God can show himself holy, can show himself powerful, can show himself as protecting his covenant people, Israel. And one of the things that happens over and over, for example, as we read Exodus, which we're going to start in two weeks, one of the things we're going to find is that the destruction that God reigned upon Egypt was so that they would know that he could do it. Same idea here. Now, the idea that God is going to vindicate his holiness before all of the nations by demonstrating his own power. If you go to Revelation 20, which is the other place Gog is mentioned, and I'll pick it up in verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, this is the thousand-year reign of Messiah, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we have Gog and Magog again. This time they're being orchestrated by Satan. Back in Ezekiel 38, they're being orchestrated by God. The other thing about this array of people that are around, first off, Israel is living in peace, according to this. And the other thing about it is, the overwhelming force that is coming against Israel, one of the commentaries I read is, says the whole purpose of this is there are too many of them for Israel to defeat. Even their best military in the region is not going to be a match, especially if Russia is involved, third world country with a first world military. So the idea here is this will be overwhelming force that Israel is not able to handle by themselves, and it will take the direct hand of God in order to stop it. Hence, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Israel's going to win, and it's going to be real obvious to everybody that they didn't do it by themselves. Like Gideon, where he sent everybody home because he didn't want Israel to take credit for the victory. Verse 17, thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But in that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake on the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence." And the mountains shall be thrown down, and cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall be tumbled to the ground. That sounds very much like Revelation. The seals and the trumpets that they're open, you got this kind of stuff happening. So the idea that this could be Revelation territory couldn't argue with you. Verse 21. 
I will summon a sword against Gog in all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstorms, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So again, this sounds very much like Revelation territory. It also sounds like Plague of Egypt territory, where God intervenes directly and makes things happen. There's also some words in here that indicate the latter days, this idea that it's going to be in the future, but on that day and so forth. Those are all words that prophecy buffs take as clues to end-time events. I, quite frankly, am not a prophecy maven. I read it because it's in Scripture, but I've always regarded arguing over prophecy, great indoor sport, no heavy lifting, everybody can play. I don't see a whole lot of point arguing about that stuff. I'm not spending all my time looking around every corner to see has the Antichrist come yet. It's interesting, and as long as you don't invest too much important in it, it's interesting stuff to study and to read about and so forth. You all, of course, know about the greater exodus. God says that there is going to come an exodus that is going to be so great that the first one will not be remembered. I don't remember who I heard teaching this years ago, but he said it's sort of like the Twin Towers. When you say the attack on the Twin Towers, nobody remembers the first one. There was, in fact, a car bomb in the basement of the Twin Towers, also set by Islamists, and nobody remembers that because of 9-11. So the metaphor there is, this is going to be so big that nobody's going to remember Moses. I mean, certainly don't forget Moses, but you understand what I'm saying. And it is my hope, is probably the best way to say it, that just as Moses got everybody rounded up and put in Goshen, and Israel knew what was going on, knew what God was doing, I mean, more or less, and weren't worried about it. They were kept safe in Goshen. It is my hope that when God brings this about again, he will do the same thing that he did last time. He'll get his people, get them rounded up, get them out of the way in the wilderness or wherever while he deals with this. That's his pattern. That's what he's done before. He didn't suck Israel into the overhead and then start raining stuff down on Egypt. They stayed in Egypt, and he just arranged to miss them. So that's one of the reasons why I don't look around every corner and try to figure out who the Antichrist is and so forth. I figure as long as I'm keeping focused on what God wants me to do, God will somehow arrange to get me where he wants me to be because that's what he's done in the past. So chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, 
chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Notice who's making all this happen. This is like the third time God has emphasized that I am going to bring this about. Now, he also says that you're going to get the idea that you're going to be able to loot the place. It's sort of a combination of God's going to make it happen, but it's going to be their idea. Verse 3, Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. A couple of things going on here, obviously. One is, of course, God is intervening in the battle. But notice that the armies that are coming into Israel are going to be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. But there's also going to be an attack on Magog, which is the home territory. It is not just going to be the case that the field armies are going to be destroyed. That's going to happen. But also the place where they came from. We're going to kill you and we're going to go back and burn the nest. Verse 7. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Prophecy buffs take that kind of language as far future, or end times language. Verse 9. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them. Shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears, they will make fires of them for seven years, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forest, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. A couple of things here. Thing one is, of course, you remember when Syrians besieged Israel and we had the lepers that were in the gate and lepers went outside of the gate and walked into the enemy camp and discovered it was deserted. They go in there and they start plundering the place and then they say, oh, we're not doing right here. We ought to go tell people. It's that kind of a thing. All their equipment and stuff that they bring in is going to be used. Now, the other thing is burning the weapons for seven years. The best explanation that I have heard of that is nuclear weapons. You have tactical nukes. You may have ballistic missiles that come in and don't explode. And so what happens is you get a lot of very high-grade fissionable material that can then be burned in reactors. It's sort of like Zechariah, where you have the woman in the basket and the storks with twin fires. Well, instead of woman in the basket with a lead cover, you say fire in the basket with a lead cover. And you have a stork with two fires. Have you ever seen an F-15 from back? When it flies, the, the wings are tucked down and you have two fires in the back. So the idea of the woman in the basket covered with lead 
And the stork with fires could very well be a nuclear strike against Iran. All it takes is a change in vowel pointing, and that's what you've got. So the idea here is we're not talking about clubs and spears and lots of wood. We're talking about fissionable material, probably talking about lots of fuel. You have all these vehicles that come in, and they've got fuel with them and tankers and so forth. So the idea that you've got lots of energy that's being poured in certainly works. Verse 11. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. And I will block the travelers, for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be in the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers, as in B-U-R-R-I-E, not, not block, but people who bury, till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Hemonah is also the name of the city. Thus they shall cleanse the land. This sounds very much like modern warfare, where you've got chemical weapons, you've got radiological weapons and so forth. You have specialists whose job is to decontaminate the land. And they get so good at it that they get renowned worldwide. One of the things I ran across a while back is parts of France in the north by Belgium and Luxembourg are still contaminated from World War I. And they are so contaminated that they can't farm it. Not just unexploded munitions. I mean, there's, lot, there's tons of unexploded munitions there. But there are also heavy metal pollution, chemical pollution, and the land is basically dead. And this is 100 years later after World War I. And we aren't talking radioactive weapons back in World War I. We're just talking about high explosives and heavy metals and chemicals. So the idea that it's going to take a while to clean up the land after this encounter is certainly not at all far-fetched. Verse 17, As for you, son of man, that's just the Lord God. Speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk. At the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. Now, I am not arguing with God here. However, I did some work when I was a consultant with the Tennessee Valley Authority. And the Tennessee Valley Authority has got nuclear power plants. They also have 
nuclear weapons stuff there. And one of the things that was going on, they had these containment ponds, which are open air ponds that are full of radioactive water. And for quite a ways around there, you don't eat the ducks and the geese because they nest on these ponds and absorb the radiation. So they were cautioning people, make sure that you get your ducks and geese checked to make sure that they're not carrying any contamination. And so when I see this, where the birds are going to eat everything and so forth, I can't help but think about that, especially since we have just gone through this business of the corpses and everything that's contaminated. So we're at verse 21. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. I hid my face from them. This is sort of the bottom line of the whole thing. Remember, as we were back in 36 and 37, God was saying, you guys have profaned my name among all the nations. Because what nations are saying is, hey, he was their God and he couldn't keep them in line. And furthermore, he was their God and he couldn't protect them from Babylon and Assyria and so forth. So the fact that you guys have been scattered all over the world you have profaned by name just by continuing to exist because people think that I am not capable of doing what I said I would do. So what this Gog and Magog war does is it brings overwhelming force against Israel. God then slaps it down and everybody will know that the reason that Israel was allowed to be conquered was because God allowed it in response to Israel's iniquity, not because God was unable to prevent it. That's what 21 through 24 says. So this whole thing is by way of letting everybody know that had I not wanted you to conquer Israel back with Babylon or Assyria or anybody else, you wouldn't have conquered them. The only reason you conquered them is because I let you, and the only reason I let you is because Israel broke covenant. So this is all by way of being an object lesson to the nations. 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. This is the whole house of Israel, Israel and Judah, all Jacob. Verse 26. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them, 
when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, something strange about this. Remember back when he was gathering Israel before, what did he say? I am gathering you for my name's sake, and you will be ashamed of what you did. When I gather you back and bring you in, you're going to be ashamed. Here, he says, you will not be ashamed, which indicates to me perhaps two different events. We were saying very carefully that I and nobody I've read has got a real good handle on when this takes place. And there's easily four or five different theories. Each one of them has something that's wrong with it as you read the text. Oh, this sounds like tribulation period. Wait a minute. No. It sounds like 1948. Wait a minute. No, that isn't right. So we have very carefully not tried to peg this to any particular time period. So there is the Gog and Magog War. And as I say, a lot of it sounds like Revelation territory. A lot of it sounds like contemporary stuff right now. A lot of it sounds like thousand-year reign territory. I don't know. And I certainly am not dogmatic about it. So if you decide that you want to pick one, pick one and enjoy. I won't throw you out of the church. I just don't know. (laughs) 